my dear friend for nearly 40 years, Dale Brown. Uh, welcome, Coach. So thankful to have you here. Well, Brendan, it was kind of funny. I saw an interview by Donald Trump two days ago, and he said there's a new surprise upon the horizon. He's always tickling people. He said the new Larry King will soon appear, and the next day you called me to be on your show. So I guess he was talking about you. Is that valid? Well, Trump and I have a lot in common, you know, and, uh, and, and as we're recording this today, he's coming to our great city of Baton Rouge today, ironically. Uh, so, uh, you know, the three of us in this town, it's only meant to be, you know. Uh, you know, when I got Troika. In, yes. Uh, <laughs> you know, when, when I got into coaching, when I graduated college, it was, you know, the year after you came to LSU, and, uh, you know, I had my, my starting coaching, uh, you know, with Dick Vitale at the University of Detroit. But we had gotten to know each other when you were an assistant. When I used to work as a, you know, I was a camper, and then I worked as a counselor at a five-star basketball camp, and that's mm -hmm. when I passed first cross. And over the years, you know, you've been someone that I admired so, so much. And, and that's why I'm so thrilled that I've been in this town now for the last two years and just getting a chance to visit with you. And, and uh, you know, I find you to be uh, almost like the fellow in the beer commercial, one of the most interesting people in the world. And, and I mean that truly. And, you know, but, you know, your story of, of coaching, your path to coaching is incredible and anyone that follows it knows it. But, you know, when you got into, you know, when you finally got your start at LSU, talk about the program when you took it over, where it is. I mean, we see now living here, uh, maybe one of the great brands in college sports, the LSU brand in an incredible sports state that loves its football and stuff. But in basketball, you know, you followed the great uh, Pete Maravich here with his dad, Press Maravich, but talk about what it was like coming to this state and trying to convince people there was something other than football. Joe Dean, who is now passed, and you knew well, yep. one of the executives yes. for Converse, Mr. Basketball in the country. Everybody knew Joe Dean. After I got the job, he took my wife and I. You no, know, my wife wasn't here yet. Just took me to dinner. Took me to dinner, and he said, Dale, I'm really happy you're here. And let me tell you what this job is. This is football country. And he said, and Joe was so animated, as you know, all the time. Effervescent. He says, it's football country. And he says, here's what you're going to have to do. Now, mark my words. He said, you're going to have to sweep the floor. You're going to have to keep score. You're going to have to do all your own promotion. And you'll probably have to sing the national anthem. That's how <laughs> bad it is. He said, they do not care. He said, there's been fleeting moments of greatness, obviously, with Bob Pettit and the great Pete Maravich. But Pete's gone. They don't care. That's what you're going to have to do. Do you know, Brendan, he did not embellish that. The very first day, October 15, 1972, I got down in the gym like I always do, an hour ahead before any kids, any of the players are there. The lights are off. So I tell the manager, how come the lights are off? I don't know. So I find the custodian, get the lights on. Turn the lights on. The baskets were rolled up. There was lint, literally lint. It was a tartan floor at that time. There were no chairs set out. So I said, find a, find a, find a, find a gender. And I, I ran upstairs, the guy running it, and I said, well, what's the story? What do you mean? I said, today's the beginning of practice. Well, we, don't have a, we don't have enough staff. Myself, my assistants, managers, and trainers, we swept the floor, lowered the baskets. The janitor helped us do that. I wasn't smart enough to do it. Used, used Windex and cleaned our own backboards off. So Joe Dean was pretty accurate. It was a very, very difficult job. Our brochure, media guide, was always the, never on time at the SEC conference, never. And if you saw our first one, in fact, I'm going to make a point <laughs> the next game I'm at to bring it, to let you see it. It looked like, it looked like a nine-year-old child put it together. <laughs> so thank God for Carl Maddox, the athletic director, a wonderful guy, a high school coach. He was the athletic director. I went to him, and he said, listen, I'll back you. You do what you got to do. So it, it was, I'm not trying to sound like a martyr here, but it was really a struggle. Joe Dean was, Joe Dean was pretty accurate. You had to be a combination of everything. Coaching almost came second to just keep the program above water. 
So how, now, how, now you went out, and, and as we know at the collegiate level at any time, it was always about, you know, your knowledge is so important, you know, being able to teach at, at, at all times in any sport. But, you know, talent, you know, is what wins at the college and professional level. But no question. So, and so, you know, you were battling the monster of Kentucky way back in that day. Uh, you know, with Joe Hall probably and just at the Adolph Ruffin. So how, how do you convince players now to come here in a non-basketball tradition? You know, Brendan, people listening to this are going to think you and I talked or this is programmed. No, but no. You, you, you've hit now. This is amazing. This is coming in chronological. You hit exactly the other thing. I hired an assistant, Jack Shallow. You probably knew him. He was a no, assistant with Florida well. Yep, yep. No, Jack so... We took the SEC media guide, and I said, let's go through this, Chad. Who's the competition? Well, obviously, you'd have to be in a coma not to know Kentucky was on top. But when I looked at it, Kentucky had won more SEC championships than anyone in the entire league combined, all the teams in the league. And I said, well, well let's see how LSU's done against them. I went down the chart. Now, this is 100 years or how long it was. Well, one time they beat him in Kentucky. One time they beat him in Baton Rouge. And I said to Jack, "That's who we're. That's who. That's what we got to set our sights high." So we had our first meeting in the basement of old Broussard Hall, which I don't think you're familiar with. That's no longer a facility. Yep. And I had written on the board. I said, "Gentlemen, it's Jack Shell." First time we really sat with the team, and I said, "This is who we're shooting after. This is how many times you've beaten Kentucky in Baton Rouge one." You've, LSU's beaten them once on the road. The average loss is 24.5 points a game. This is who we're heading for. It's not Auburn. It's not Tulane. It's Kentucky. That's the, that's the beacon light. Well, I saw him looking at me. What's this carpetbagger from North Dakota coming in here talking like that? Well, we slowly, slowly, <clears throat> um, we go up there the first Remember, I said the average loss was 24.5 points a game yeah. at, at Kentucky. We go up there the first year on this big fired-up Newt Rock knee deal. We get blown out by 28 points. So I came in, well, we'll, we'll do it one day. We went out the next year. We lost by 30 points. We go out the third year. We lose by 32 points. We go up there the fourth year. And it's like 34 points or something like that. So I'm coming down, and I'm going to talk to these guys. What am I going to talk to them about? Here in my big mouth, I'm telling them we got to, we're going to go up there and beat them. So I thought, I've got to be bold. The French call it E-Day fix. Whatever you fix in your mind happened. Now, some will call that Pollyanna, but that's all I ever had to hold on to. My mother taught me that growing up in a one-room apartment on welfare with no father. She taught me, don't ever think negative. So I burst into the room, and I said, okay, put, get your heads up. Get your heads up before you shower. I said, let me say something. I really apologize. You seniors, you're done. You're never going to beat Kentucky. You underclassmen, if you'll stick with me, guys, I promise you, if you'll stay with this system, if you'll believe in me, I won't con you. One day, and I sounded at that time like the white man's Muhammad Ali, what I said, <laughs> one day we'll come back up to Lexington, Kentucky, and beat them worse than they beat us today. And boom, I left. Well, now being bold, I can't cover it up in the newspaper. So they asked me what I told them and how I feel about it. It's embarrassing. But I said, one day... I'll have a team come back up here and beat Kentucky worse than we, they beat us. Well, a couple years went by. We're playing him in Rupp Arena. Two and a half minutes to go. We're 40-some points ahead. My assistant's pulling me on the coattail. Coach, he said, I'm going to tell you, he said, you got to substitute. Ron, <laughs> this game's not over yet. Coach, I don't want to be disrespectful. It's about as close to being over as any game I've ever been. So we cleared the bench. Well, we beat him. By 35 points, the worst loss in the history of Kentucky home basketball. Now, was that some pill, prayer, prescription, magic wand? No. It was getting people to think out of their little shell. People are going to be – now, do you need talent? Obviously you need talent. <laughs> you, yeah. you you can go so long with, with you know, the, the spiritual aspect and the motivation, but you've got to have talent. And to sum this up, and I'll quit dominating this conversation. No. <clears throat> When I first got the job in 1972, I thought, I've got to learn from the best. I don't want to blow this. This is my first head coaching job in college. I've got to learn from the best. So who are the best? The people that last the longest. Anybody can be a fly-by-nighter. But 
who's got longevity? So I started digging up. Well, obviously, there was no question in basketball. It was John sure. Wooden. Now, who had the greatest longevity in entertainment, in movies? Well, it was two people. Bob Hope in movies, Lawrence Welk in entertainment. I didn't know Bob Hope, but I called Lawrence Welk. I called John Wooden. Um, Norman Vincent Peale, the father of positive thinking, yep. Bob Richards, the greatest public speaker. I went and spent time with him. Well, I was there for four days with Coach Wooden, and I made a, I made a, took a legal pad. I didn't want to waste any of his time, Brendan. I was thrilled to this. I could get everything down, so I started with A. What can I talk to him about A? Academics, attitude, achievement, B, box and one defense, bulletin boards. Does he believe in it? Go all the way down to zone press. So after four days... He walks me out to the car. And here's the secret. Remember that book and movie called The Secret? Yeah, here's the yeah. secret, which you've known since they snipped your umbilical cord. <clears throat> he said, Dale, I really enjoyed you coming out here. We, we bonded now these four days. We're going to be friends for life. But he said, it really wouldn't have been necessary. He said, we could have done this on the telephone. He said, let me tell you, there are three things. That's it. Three things. These three things, you cannot be ultra successful in coaching if you don't practice these three things. Number one, make certain you have better players than anybody you play. And that's difficult. Number two, make sure those better players you're recruiting always put the team above themselves. And finally, and Dale, this might be as important as anything I've told you in these last four days. I've told you have better players, number one, make sure all better players put the team above themselves. And number three, don't try to be some coaching genius or guru. The court's 94 by 50. There's so many, so many things you can do. He said, what you must do is every day practice simplicity with constant repetition. And he said, don't try to be some coaching genius. Simplicity with constant repetition with your players. He summed Brilliant. it up perfectly. Brilliant. Uh, you know, I had the pleasure of speaking to a great friend of yours. We did a podcast with a, a week or two ago, a Don Yeager, who went and, you know, spent 14 years, as you know, uh, going out there once a month or so to visit mm -hmm. with Coach Wooden and mm -hmm. has written several books on him and stuff like that. And the, and the two of you, you know, could be two of the foremost authorities Really, you're as a basketball coach and he as a journalist as far as really understanding Coach Wooden. And I think just the idea of studying from the greatness of him uh, really shapes one's lives, and especially the lives of, you know, our true mission of developing young people. And, and you know, talk to me about how his pyramid of success, Wooden's pyramid of success, has influenced you in the way you approach your teaching or influencing of young people? Well, prior to the pyramid of success, uh, of course, I'd known about it but hadn't really studied it. And in fact, I, I th I'd seen a copy of it in a book one time, but I didn't personally have a copy myself. But I think the things I learned from him, Brendan, that are spectacular, um, he was really now I'm telling you what, he was a disciplinarian. He was he was really, really but in the same token, watching him in practice or in his games, he um he had the ability to motivate without grabbing somebody by the neck or anything. Bill Walton told me an interesting story. He said um, Coach he said, you know, many people come up to me, they want to know about Coach Wooden, he said, is he is he I never ever heard him swear, but I really did hear him swear, but he didn't swear. And he starts laughing. What do you mean by that? He said, I'm a freshman, and I'm kind of screwing up things. I'm hyperactive. And he said, he stopped practice. Stop, 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 stop. And he said, he came over, and he grabbed his head with both hands. He said, Bill, 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 look at me. Look at me. Look at me, son. Look at me. Goodness gracious sakes alive. I've got to be the worst coach in the world. He said, you just don't do things I must be a poor teacher, and my goodness gracious sakes alive. Come on, get it right. You know what he called me, Dale? He called me an SOB. He called me an idiot. He called, But he didn't call me that, but he called me that. But I think what I learned from him, and that was typical of him. I think, I think the thing that most people don't know about him, Brendan, which is really simple. Um, many people, after I had this long relationship, would say to me, they were curious for a combination of reasons on Coach. Tell us about Coach Wooden, you know. 
how can he be so successful? He's such a, a gentle guy. I said, how can he be successful? He's a gentle guy. Well, I said, I can't answer that, but Abraham Lincoln can answer that. I said, Abraham Lincoln said, the first sign of strength is gentleness. But he also, this guy, he would never give up on anything. Most people don't know this. You know, when they, when they recognize it, he's won 10 national championships. Nobody will ever beat that. Nobody, Mike Krzyzewski's halfway there. Nobody will ever get, probably get more than five. But the reason he was so tenacious, he, was, he hadn't won anything. Consider this, the greatest coach at all time, Brendan, at 53, had never won a state high school championship or a college national title. His first 14 years at LSU, I mean at UCLA, before he ever went to a Final Four. The first, the first 15 years he was there at the school, the first 14, he only went to five NCAA tournaments. That's 10 years he didn't go, and his record was three wins and nine losses. Now, he'd be cast aside. In the day of uh, immediate gratification syndrome, he'd be oh, cast aside. So they, they, they reluctantly kept him. Now, they had met in Westwood, three guys. I knew one of them. They had met, and they made the decision. Hey, he'd been there 13 years. He hadn't done anything. So, and they, these were big time. I'm talking about into the millions. They were building buildings. He said, how about meeting the president's office tomorrow? I'll set it up. We'll, we'll, we'll get a new guy. He said, well, we, we all agreed. On the way home, there weren't cells at that time, the one guy said. And he said, so I really felt kind of bad about it. I said, you know, he's really a nice guy. And he, you know, so I called the president. And he said, I just offered $25 million. And he said, uh, I told him, I met with two, two guys. One of them is going to call you about a meeting. I'm not coming. He said, so if you fire John Wooden, I will not give the $25 million and I'll be anti-UCLA. So the president didn't tell him what he was or wasn't going to do. Well, the president was pretty smart. The next 12 years, he won 10 national championships. <laughs> so today, it's it, it's funny. Uh, I was talking to Jerry that? Norman the other day. Did you ever meet Jer Jerry, his assistant, that put in the no, zone for us? No, but I knew of him, yes, but I never met him. He said Jerry was Jerry was really a brilliant guy. I wanted to be in a multimillionaire. In fact, I'm going out to California to visit our daughter. And going to a UCLA game with him, we were talking about John Wooden. He said, Dale, let me tell you what John Wooden was. First of all, he was a very smart person. And he knew what he did not know. And as a result, he was very attentive listener to new ideas from assistants. And I thought, wow. He said, John Wooden was a very smart person. And he knew what he did not know and was a very attentive listener to new ideas from his assistants. So in other words, he never put himself up on a pedestal. Uh, talk about times have changed. His highest salary was thirty-two thousand five hundred five hundred dollars. Oh my! Oh my! Never God. asked for a raise. He lived in a modest condominium in, in modest condominium in Encino. He drove a nineteen eighty-eight Ford Taurus. Uh, he's just—he was a remarkable guy. I, I learned so much from him, and. Uh, you know, but you know this. What makes Coach so great is that he, you know, and of all people of that caliber, is that when they leave us, their their truths stay on forever, and that, that yep. and that's really a sign of who, who he was. I remember when right when you were at, coming to LSU, I was uh, at a coaching clinic. I used to love to go to clinics when I first got in there, and. I was at the Boston, up in Boston, at what they used to call medalist clinics, and he was one of the speakers. And he, it's Saturday morning, and I think he might have spoken on Friday night. And at 7:30, as I'm going to hear the first speaker, he is sitting in the lobby by himself. Yep, that's him by himself, and and that's and no him. one's coming up to him. Can you imagine that if Coach K was in the lobby or someone like yep. or, or Nick? Saban or Belichick or someone. Um, so I, I walked totally up to him and I and I introduced myself to him, and he says, "Lad," he says, "Oh, I love the name Brendan. What a wonderful name, you know." And we spoke for five minutes, and he was he didn't care at all about who I was, what I was. He just cared about me. And I said to myself, "This this man's remarkable," and I never forgot it. You know, forty plus years later, and and I think that's one of the things about coaching, Dale. When you describe coaching, okay. And, and it really doesn't matter whether it's high school, collegiate, or pro. You know, how do you define really what coaching is? 
for because we have so many young coaches that listen to these podcasts as well as guys that you know are even at the pro level they listen to it. But I you think are really consistent. <laughs> these questions, Brendan. I, so help me God, I, you know me well enough. I, I know very I, well. I, I, I speak from my heart instead of my head, and sometimes that's why I'm involved in controversy. And I'm not trying to do this to make you feel good. But these questions are so probing and so fun, it enthuses me to talk about it. It just isn't some nebulous thing. And one other thing about you, maybe I should tell your wife this. I have never heard, and how many <laughs> of us can ever say this? Talk, the last time you talked to Brenda wasn't so good, so I appreciate it. I know. <laughs> you talked to her better. I know. Go ahead. But, but, let's not tell but, that story. <laughs> but, but you talk when I said, oh, I met your sister? Yeah, yeah. Is that the one? Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Nice. I met your sister, Dominique. She's pretty. How old is she? About 23? Huh? I don't have a sister. But, but, but the thing that Coach Wooden had that was really a beautiful thing, he, um, what he did to you was so natural. So It was so pure. It was so he, – he represented everything that was good. He had uh, – I'll give you an example. I'd brought him, I brought him to Baton Rouge on several occasions to speak to camp, my basketball camp. And we're sitting in T.J. Ribs. And, uh, love it. I love T.J. Oh, boy. My buddy Tom Moran's no longer with yep. us, the owner. So, yep. Coach, you just picked up his ribs, you know. Mm, these are, and I saw a young man <laughs> off to the left standing with a suit on, kind of 40 years old. And he came over and said, Coach, what, excuse me, I know this is rude what I'm going to do. He said, but I must say this. I'm not here to shake your hand. I don't want an autograph, and I don't want to picture you. I just want to tell you this. You are one of God's angels. You are a legend of all time, and you're my hero. God bless you, Coach. And he turned and walked away. But six steps, Coach wouldn't. Young man, young man, come here, please. He put his ribs down. He said, what's your name, young man? Which I don't remember, so Joe, Joe Doe, Joe Doe. Joey, I just want to tell you something. You just made a very old man feel real good, but I don't want you to leave here with false impressions of me. He said, I think you should know this about me, even though you thrilled me by what you said. He said, I'm not what I ought to be. I'm not what I could be, and I'm not what I should be. But I'm sure glad I'm not what I used to be, and you've just made me, you've motivated me to be a better man. Thank you, Joe. I just, I said, how can, how can he do this? How does he have... How does he have the knack of doing it? And he he was – there wasn't a phony bone in his body. I was just – you asked me about coaching. What would I tell young coaches that are listening? I spoke in Great Falls, Montana at the Montana Coaches Clinic, basketball coaches clinic, 1,500 basketball coaches. Wow. <laughs> a little, 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 little tiny state of Montana. I was there two days. So the director of it asked, at the end of the two days, could I open it up to questions? And I said, sure. So the very first question asked was, guys, Coach, you've been here two days. He said, if you couldn't if you couldn't come here and we just had you on a loudspeaker and you could just tell us one thing about coaching, he said, what would that one thing be? Nobody ever asked me that before. And I said, well, do you mean strategy? Do you mean motivation? Do you mean what one thing? He's just one thing only, whatever you'd want to say. What could you say? I said, no one's ever asked me that before. And I said, I'm, I'm going to ponder it. And I usually don't ponder. I open my mouth before I think. But I said, the thing that hits me right away, that just immediately hits me, I said, from my own background, not having a father, and what a coach did to me one time, I said, the male image was never good to me. And I said, a coach, a coach would ever say, son, I just stare him down in practice. I'm not your son or anybody else. I'm a mother's son. I didn't say that to the coach, but I said I tested people. Well, one day the former coach is now the principal, and I got – I was in a class I had just left, and there's a knock on the door, and it's the coach, and he calls me out in the hall. And he's got me up against a lot. What you just – I went to an all-Catholics. What would you just call sister in the last class? Well, there was a nun that was really mean. I'm telling you, she was mean. She had a hearing aid. We didn't think she could hear, and she'd hit you with the ruler all the time, you know. She was just mean. So we're going out of the class, and one of the guys said to me, now, she had a hearing aid, so I wouldn't think she could hear. What what do you think of her? I said, she's a son of a bitch, to be honest with you. (laughs) So we get to the next class, and he's got me. So what would you call sister? Well, I didn't want to swear to the father, and I said, I swore at her. 
Now he's backed me into the lock. He swore at her. Is that what you said? I swear at you? I thought, I don't want to say what I said, you know, to myself. I said, no, I called her an SOB. That's the word you used, SOB? No. I said, I called her a son of a bitch. He grabbed my shirt, and I don't think he meant to do this, and he twisted it, and he kind of banged my head off the locker, but he cut my lower lip with his, with his knuckle. He didn't mean to, and I could feel the blood. So I folded my fist, and I thought, as soon as he lets go, I'm going to drive his butt. I was going to hit him. I was a <laughs> rebel. You know, here's the male image. Mine left me. So here's the secret, what he did. He tapped me in back. Of, he squeezed my neck just as he was leaving and tapped it and said, Dale Brown, God don't make any junk. I love you, man. And he walked down the hall. Now, telling you this now, really, wow. I could I could almost cry right now. Think, I turned and looked at him, and I said, that's the first man that ever told me he loved me. No coach had ever told me that prayer. This is the ex-coach. And so I think if you're in coaching or really anything, um, if you're in business, I think this holds true. Players don't, players don't care. They don't really care how much you know, Brendan, until they know how much you care. Now they're receptive to learning. And so that sounds simplistic, but I really believe that's true. And I think the other thing about Coach Wooden, he um, he was a he was a guy that really understood what success was. And I told him this one time. It was near. I was out to his 96th birthday party. And I really, every time I left him for years, I'd kiss him goodbye in the forehead, and I think that's going to be the mm-hmm. last time I ever see him. So I'd like to leave, sure. I'd like to leave with him a, a thought. And I said, Coach, you know, there's only one way to describe you. I said, is Edgar Guest, the poet, he described you perfectly when he said, "I'd rather see a lesson than to hear one any day. I'd rather you walk with me." than to merely show the way. The eye's a better teacher and more willing than the ear. The counsel you're giving may be very fine and true, but I'd rather get my examples by observing what you do. Assisi in the 13th century, 13th century, said we should preach the gospel every day, and if necessary, use words. (laughs) Follow the actions. Talk is cheap. Well, you know, I, I, I really think coaching has evolved now to exactly what you said. I think you have to love your players, you have to serve them, and you have to care for them. And I think that's the same lessons, Dale, that when you go and speak to corporations all over the world, you preach to them as far as leadership. It's the same message mm-hmm. in, when you're leading a, a business. You have to love the people that work for you, you have to serve them, and you have to care for them. And then they'll go through the roof for you. It's not... People work for you and play for you, and not how much money you pay them. It's how much you you know you know they know you care. And 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 I think you know everyone's worrying about that X's and O's. And I think you know we just went through this with Coach O. I'm a big Les Miles guy. I love Les Miles for 30 years. Mm -hmm. But Coach O showed those kids how much he loved them, and they and they returned and they returned his love. And 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 I think it's a great example, you know, uh, of of what coaching is about. And and I think, it, but you've gone out and done that your whole life. Talk to me about, and I think our listeners would love this because one of my neighbors in Windermere, Florida, is you know your prodigal son, Shaquille O'Neal, and I, and I love Shaq, and I've known him since you know he came into the NBA. Uh, you know, had the good fortune his rookie year of Chuck and I going against him, and he's broke a backboard mm-hmm. in New Jersey when we're coaching against him, and, mm-hmm. and Chuck loves him to death, and. Uh, because of who he was, but I know he he loves you to death, and uh, you know, and I think that's the truest testament. This is, you know, as we both know, uh, you know, he's. Uh, I'm not trying to. No one's Muhammad Ali. No one. I understand that. That's right. But you know, Magic Johnson, Michael Jordan, Shaquille O'Neal, they're icons of icons, and yeah. around the world, and and you know, I, I know many people know the story, but if you would share briefly. Uh, your relationship with him. I know he loves where it started, the way you believed in him, but how it even goes now, today. Now, are you talking about from the beginning or after he got here? Yeah, no, you can talk about him. briefly about the beginning when, you know, over in Germany. So, well, know, I think, I think it's really fitting. Got, the State Department got a hold of me years ago, and the communism was still very 
prevalent in Europe and what have you. And they wanted me to speak to the – they'd sent over – they called it reforger, 90,000 troops to mass them on the East German border to let the communists know, hey, we're here, we're staying, you're not coming. So the last spot I had was a cracked armored division up in the mountains in a place called Wildflecken. Finished my lecture. I'm packing my bag. I get a tap on the shoulder, and there's a giant of a guy. I would say at the time, 6'9", 250, and he stuttered. Coach Brown, I'll be trying out. So he told me he's trying out for the basketball team, and he said, Coach, you know what? I can't even dunk a ball. And I run up and down the court about three or four times in my lower extremities tire. He said, can you show me some exercises to build that up? He said, I want to make the team I'm trying out for. So I said, well, do you have a weight room in this gym? Which they didn't. And I said, uh, well, let me show you some non-resistant exercises. So I showed him some non-resistant exercises. It took 10 minutes maximum. I said, let me go get a pen piece of paper out of my bag. So I went and got a pen piece of paper. And I said, what I'll do, soldier? I said, as soon as I get back to Baton Rouge, I'll send our weight training program to you. I said, give me your address. And he did. And I said, how long have you been in service, soldier? Big old smile. He says, I'm not in service. And he cupped, cupped, his, cupped his hand over his mouth and reached down. He said, Coach Brown, I'm only 13 years old. Jeez, what are you doing here? He said, my dad's a career military man. I looked at his feet, and I said, what size shoe do you wear? He said, size 17. Oh, my said, God. 13 years old. I said, where's your dad now? He's in the sauna. I'd like to meet him. So we head off to the sun, and I'm pulling my business card out. And just I was just going to walk, put my hand on the sauna door, and it bursts open. That's my dad, barrel-chested guy, sweating profusely, military green towel around his neck. That's my dad. Sergeant, I said, my name's Dale Brown. I passed him my business card. I said, I just met your fine son here. And he took the card, and I, was, I said, you know, we'd like to keep track of him, you know, see him play again. I'd come back to Germany to watch him. And almost with disdain, Brendan, he looks over the top of the card, not really impressed with me. And then he puts a hand up near my face, and he's Coach Brown, I don't, I don't want to be. I don't want to be rude. Can I say something? This basketball is all fine and good. But he said, I want to see my son become an intellectual. I want to see my son graduate. I want to see my son do something besides just be a basketball player. If you're interested in his intellect, someday we might talk. Well, I knew then, I knew then. We'd get him. And he said, well, what are you talking about? You got a Ouija board or a crystal? No, that was my philosophy. So let's jack the story ahead. Now mm. he's got a doctorate degree. Yep. He's one of the most benevolent people I've ever met on earth. Um, 30 years later, any major decision, who does he call? We, <laughs> I put him in a speech class as a freshman. And uh, this is a cute story you'll love. And, boy, he came in when he picked up his pack. Coach, I can't be in speech class. I've never given a speech. I can't. Oh, you can't. Where are you transferring to? What do you mean? Well, you came. I told your parents I would be a leader for you. One day, Shaquille, you're going to be in a position that you need to know how to speak. You'll be doing a lot of speaking. Well, that was a good talk. First nine games, he fouled out of, I think, six of them. He uh, didn't have a jump shot, didn't have a hook. He could run the court. He was a great athlete. Um, he, he didn't. He, he told me, he told me, Coach, I don't want to be involved in the offense. I just want to block shots and rebound and play defense. Okay, so I don't think that'll work. So what I did, I benched him momentarily so he could sit on the bench. He didn't have confidence. Now, that may surprise you. He looked like he did. So the next day I called him in the office and I said, now I'm not going to, this is not going to be a seance. I'm not going to ask you to shut your eyes, but I want you to dream what I'm going to dream for you. I said, do you know, do you have any idea how good you can be? Mm, no, not really. Uh, he, he didn't know what three quarter, three quarter of them, you'd holler up. He didn't know what that even meant. Little, little simple things. I said, well, let me, let me, let me, let me set a scene for you. Well, the scene is set. Now, Jack, the clock ahead. He had a speech uh, where my daughter lives in Southern California, and we flew out together, and he wanted me to come and critique his speech, and my daughter went. So afterwards, we went backstage. He was so excited. This was a, a big leadership seminar, one of the five-star resorts on Laguna Beach, not Laguna Beach, yeah. uh, 
Newport Beach area. Sure. And he said, oh, right. he said, uh, Coach, you remember when you put me in that speech class and what you told me? And I said, guess what? They just paid me for that speech. I said, what? Oh, my Lord. But he he never once, he never challenged anything. He he was just a, he was delightful. Everything was yes, sir, no, sir. Um, He was very easy to coach. We know it's interesting nowadays, uh, you know, the new young player, uh, any sport, male, female, uh, they fall into this. Uh, IY generation, the millennials, they call them now. Mm-hmm. And uh, and uh, it seems that no matter what happens when the young person, male, female, makes a mistake, it's never the child's fault. It's always the coach, the teacher in school. Yep. It's That's never right. the child. That's and back right. in our day, it was always, they were the coach, teacher, leader was always right. You came home and got your fanny smacked. If you yep. did anything wrong. Well, I know Sarge, and I know great Lucille, his great, wonderful mama, and he had two great parents that really kept him you yeah, know, I meant the opposite so parents, too. He totally the opposite. Was sweet and loving, she and the so, dad was gruff, and, you know, he had a good soul. A, a, a true match in heaven, though, in a way, you know, to have I agree. Balance. Yeah. And I'll tell you one thing about the sergeant. You talk about integrity. They lived in a little old bungalow on over there in San Antonio in the military base, they had uh-huh. nothing. They drove over in an old worn-out car, LSU flag, state of La Quinta. Uh, never <laughs> once, never once did he ever insinuate in recruiting. In fact, I'll tell you an interesting story. He called me, and he was upset. They had this intercept program, they call it, the top recruits. The NCA would, like, go visit their parents. Yes. He personally, the NCA investigator said, have you taken any – he personally opened up the door, grabbed the guy by the neck, and literally threw him out of his house. Say, that's an insult to us. He didn't even talk to the guy. How about that? I, I Knowing Sarge the way I did, you know, from uh, my time in Orlando, uh, yeah, he was such a stand-up guy. But Shaquille is uh, – and, and Shaquille is getting better with age, in my opinion, uh, based yeah, on the I foundation do. that I you have provided for him and the leadership – and the connection you still have, and the, you know Johnny at the Olympic golf tournament now, and he's constantly giving back to this school, which you know a lot of guys don't. They leave a school and they don't ever think yeah. of it again, and and it's amazing. But that that's the power, and that's the reason that, you know you had such success in coaching such a long time, Dale, is the relationships that you forge with these young people. I I, I saw my our, my friend who I had the pleasure of coaching, uh, and I think really one of your great Probably, if I said to you his, when I say his name, you're going to smile because he was one of the starters of your great program. Is Rudy Macklin, who I had the pleasure oh, of coaching wow. with the Hawks, wow. and I saw him like two days wow. ago, and he just loves you to death. And 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 you know, again, I coached him as a rookie in Atlanta, and and he treats me and my family like I just coached him last wow. week. I mean, that's that's the young man that you brought out of Louisville. You know what it goes back to? Story in itself. Great parents, Brendan. Great parents. Yeah. Wonderful How parents. About Brendan, I um, it's your show, but I'm going to ask you a question. I've always wondered this. In all the years I've known you, now we hadn't seen each other consistently, but when I saw yeah. you and I knew Johnny was getting that boy, and, of course, Bruce O'Neill, a mutual friend, never. Now, most of us can go to our grave or get cremated, however we're going to leave this earth. <laughs> We can't say this. I have never heard in all the years I've known, I've never heard anyone say a bad word about you. Now, the, what I, what, the question I have, how is that possible? How is that possible? Never. Wow. I've never heard one person. And I know, I know a whole spectrum, a whole litany of people that you know, mutual yeah. people, mutual friends. But forget friends, just Brendan, sir, in general. I've never heard why. What kind of home did you come out of? Well, I had a great mom and dad. Very. Uh, there you go. Nowadays, we would say, uh, you know, we were, you know, we we're low middle class, so to speak. Never, I never needed anything. I thought everything I had was more than enough. But you know, in comparison to what my two kid, great kids have had, uh, they were. I was poor compared to them for sure. Mm, uh, yeah. But you know, my mom was a school teacher. My dad worked for Chrysler for forty years. 
my first job in the NBA. He was an executive at the end, and I met. And uh, my first job when I went to the NBA, I, I you know, back uh, with U.B. Brown uh, in 1979, uh, I made $35,000 as a, you know, assistant coach with Mike Fratello and uh, mm-hmm. U.B. And, and my dad was making 34 as a 35, 40-year executive with Chrysler, and I was embarrassed to tell him how much I made because it, it would break yeah. his heart. Yeah. And he, he was so thrilled. And, and you know, and but my whole my I, I think you know my mom and dad taught me to serve other people, to love everyone, to treat everyone the same, and uh, you know, and you know, and I've had uh, one of my dear friends who I've coached who's now a player agent, B.J. Armstrong, who played for the Bulls and stuff. I remember and, distinctly. And, Didn't he play in Iowa? To Iowa, and he but he's from Birmingham, yeah. Michigan, and and so I knew him when I was coaching the Pistons as a high school kid, and. And I and I loved BJ and I always connected with him, coached him at the end of his career, and uh, now he represents the best players in the world. And uh, you know, and 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 he says to me, you know, recently he says, Brendan, I think you're black. And I said, oh, what? And he says, No, you love black people. I said, No, oh, I, I love. I, oh, I love. Oh. He says, I, I love people. I love people. And 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 my kids grew up. Having players in our house that were all black kids from Dominic yep, Wilkins yep. to Dennis Rodman to Isaiah Thomas to Joe Dumars, and mm-hmm. they 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 didn't see color ever in their life, and so I think you know uh, you know I, I like I'm thrilled to be with Johnny Jones right now. Uh, you know I never knew Johnny before I came here, and it's been one of the great things that's ever happened to me in my career, uh, 45 years in coaching. Uh, because I, I, I just, this guy loves his players. He loves people. He loves he his does. community. He loves LSU. He loves you. Uh, and, and, he, and you know what? He's really, he's really just fantastic. And, and I see what he does and I say, I, I'm humbled sometimes of how good he is. And I said, wow, you know, this guy is so special because he's more than a coach. You know, he's a father to kids. He's a teacher. And that's what the role. But, my, you know, in getting back to our question, I'm very grateful. I'm grateful to have an opportunity to have a platform to help people. Like what, nine years ago when I started coaching you, which is what this podcast goes on, my whole premise in my later coaching years was going to be to see if I could help coaches, men and women coaches, all levels, from youth all the way up to pro, international coaches. And and that's my whole focus in life and and. And and Johnny's also allowed me to help our kids here, but also gives me the freedom to still do this to, because he knows the impact I'm trying to make in the world. And so, I, I look at what we do in coaching is not just being for a provincial school, but also for the community of large of coaching. And so, uh, you know, I think the best definition I heard of coaching was, you know, because I got to I got to work with you know the best players in the world over the years and 13 Hall of Fame players as well as the dream team. And, and, and humbly, I say, uh, our purpose as a coach is to take players where they can't take themselves. And that's what I try to do, and, and I'm grateful to have the opportunity to do it. And so uh, it made my day when you said that because I'm just trying to be, you know, I, I'm just trying to be a, a good person. And trying to help people, and and I, I don't care about the money anymore. I don't care about that. I don't need any mm-hmm. anymore. Mm-hmm. As I told, I always tell my players. I coach Michael Jordan's two kids at the University of Central Florida, and Michael said, "Brendan, you can do anything you want to them. You act as their parent." You know, I said, "Okay," and I, and I said to them one day, I said, "I don't know if you know this, I beat your daddy's ass when I was coaching the Pistons a lot of times." I said, "But I'm very wealthy." And they looked at me a little startled. I said, I'm not talking about the wealth that you guys have, but I'm very rich. And they looked again, and I said, in the people that I that I know and the people that I care about, that's wealth to me. And the people I've been able to coach, that's why I'm a rich person, not financially. 
And so and you always have you know, a perpetual smile on your face. Maybe your so, I hope your wife's listening to this. Uh, no, she won't. She won't. She, okay. no, she's, not, she's not a big fan, Dale. Thirty-three years of marriage. No, she, she, no, she, no. God, believe me, I'm in the same boat. 50, Fifty-seven years. You know, you mentioned something about that hit me on the head. You were talking about what is a coach? Take people places and blah blah. Jeff Marks, do you know who he is? Best-selling author. Very, uh, that's okay. one of the, the other neat things about uh, being in Baton Rouge, getting to meet Jeff. Uh, I love Jeff Marks mm-hmm. and Joe Ehrman and the people that he's written about. Yes. Well, Jeff, Jeff and I were thinking of co-authoring a book on success and happiness. What really is success, and what, what really is it? So, two two quick stories. Have we got time for me to tell these? Dale, we got all day to you. Two quick stories that came out of it. He was from Washington, D.C., so he went to the Library of Congress, and he started digging, and he got all excited. He found two things in there that I've, I've plagiarized so many times, and I don't feel bad about that because most of us do plagiarize. <laughs> but uh, he found out about success. The first Webster Dictionary ever written was in 1806, and in that dictionary, it describes success as fortunate, happy, kind, and prosperous. Now, that rolled off my tongue pretty easy. Fortunate, happy, kind, and prosperous. 2016 Webster Dictionary will describe success as attainment of wealth, fame, rank, and power. Then, what else he found out, he, he, uh, he found, we're talking about, what does the word coach really mean? Well, he wanted to dig it up, and here's what he came up with, and I don't know where he got it. Maybe it was that same a library of Congress. Listen to what he says. The word coach was first used back in the 1500s in England. A coach was a horse-drawn carriage used to transport a person of importance from from where he or she is to where he or she wants to be, could be, needs to be, ought to be going, all these years later, that's exactly what a real coach should be doing. And this has nothing to do with league titles, state championships, national rankings. It has everything to do with making good use of the power you have as a coach to reach and teach young people about issues and ideas that will carry them on, not only through a season, but through a lifetime. Uh, Greg Popovich was on with Cornell West. Yeah. I think I might have sent it to you Yep. Uh, by email. And uh, they were asking him about winning the NBA championships, and he said, everybody won, but he said, I'm I'm more concerned with producing young men that can go out in the world and help others and make the world a better place to live. And I'm paraphrasing that, obviously. Yeah. So you can do the other things. And uh, John Wooden, the little three-by-five cards he had. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) They couldn't have been any simpler. I mean, nothing was complicated at UCLA. He wasn't complicated. The system wasn't complicated. And as he said, he was a, just as Jerry Norman said, he was a great listener. He really listened to his assistants, particularly Jerry uh, Jerry Norman and Denny Crum. Mm-hmm. Two great ones. You know, I, I think the one thing that, uh, you know, you, that I keep, uh, this is where I, I'm now, you know, when you're young and you're trying to crack any profession, and this mm-hmm. is really for the peop- the young coaches that yeah, listen yeah, to us, yeah. they're so eager to show how much they know. Yeah. And now, having kind of been in this a long time, I'm I'm anxious to find out what you know. I, I, my, one of my partners, Kevin Eastman, uh, he's the best question asker I know. He asks great questions, and and he's a great listener. And, you know, our friend George Rabbling, you know, I asked him a couple of years ago, what, let me ask you something, what makes Phil Knight so special? He says he's an incredible listener. He's a great listener, and he asks really good questions. And I I asked him what the secret at Nike was, and and he said to me, he said, no matter what product they put out there, no matter how much money they make, no matter how much success they have, they always say there is no finish line. Oh, and that's wow. Where I, 
And that's where I feel I'm at right now. That's There's true. no finish line. I'm not even coming close to learning what I need to know. I know more about coaching in the last 10 years than I learned in my first 30, you know, coaching. Brendan, I know this has got to be set up. We had notes or something. Let me tell you exactly no. what you did. After I retired, I pondered my future and my past. Now, when I was coaching 44 years, I really tried and was thinking I was doing my very best, but it became so clear to me after I retired and got away from it and started thinking, and it stimulated me to say, hey, if I thought I was doing my best, what I recognized more than ever were my limitations, my mistakes, and my distance from the ideal. I was an amateur. If I could start all <laughs> over again, holy mackerel, and you get back to George Ravley, we have so many friends that intertwine. Yes. That, yeah. that you mentioned George Ravney. When I took the job at uh, LSU, I was Ray Nagel was the AD at Washington State, and he fired the head coach and offered me the job. And I didn't take the job. I took the LSU job. And so he said to me, well, I don't know anything about basketball being an ex-football coach. He said, you bring in the three top guys in this country that you think could help the Washington State program. You interview them, then you recommend who you think I should hire. Well, I interviewed George Ravling. He was a guy I recommended to Ray Nagel to hire at Washington How State. How about that? Small world, huh? Yeah, and he's a special human being, as you know, too, uh, who loves and people, cares about people. Yes, reads more than I ever dreamt about. He reads more in a month than I read in two years, unfortunately. You know, Isn't that's that true. And I, you know, and I read a lot, and, and he's there amazing. There are some things that... There's very very few things that are steady in sports, and we go back and we think, well, was it just now? When did this start? When did this immediate gratification syndrome start? Let's go back to 1959. I don't have the letter in front of me, but it was terse. It came from the president of the University of Kentucky, and he sent it to the head coach telling him in so many words, we think you and your staff have given been more than enough time, and as a result, Within so many days, you'll be released. We no longer think you can get the job done at the University of Kentucky. And he fired the whole football staff. Here's who he fired. The head coach, Blanton Collier, went on to become wow. the head coach of the Cleveland Browns. Don right. Shula, the assistant, went on to become the head coach of the Miami Dolphins. Howard Schellenberger went on to become the head oh coach of the God. Baltimore Colts. Bill Ernstberger went on to become the head coach of the New York Giants. John North went on to become the head coach of the New Orleans Saints. And three other guys, all coached in the NFL. And so being impatient, um, yeah, yeah, you know, well, that, that, that unfortunately is one of the problems in the world right now is yeah. in, with our young people is that they're, you know, in this fast moving world that that's unfortunately uh, yeah. where we understand, I'm not saying we understood patience, but we had to be patient, you know. Yeah. Uh, you know, Dale, we we must do this again because uh, this is something our listeners are going to just love. Uh, you, your wisdom that you share. You made is, you made the program. Uh, questions no, brother. You know. Well, you know, your you are the, you're the star of this and every time I'm with you, my friend, because you are. You're, the thing that I love about you over the years is that you share. You share, and that's that's one of the things. And, and you're always teaching, and 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 for that, I appreciate you so much, and I appreciate and I appreciate your friendship over the years, and and, and it'll continue forever. And so, thank you, my brother. You're always I, fun I really to see, Brendan. You got well, a perpetual smile. Keep well, it going. Thanks. I will. I will. You're a special man. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. It's you. my pleasure, Brendan.